just wait for my wife to stop rustling. A long line of rustlers. Sheep or cattle? Oh, anything. Potatoes. No, no those are russets. Chip bags, mainly. Hello and welcome back to Where Eagles Dare. I'm Peter. And I'm Dave. And you're very welcome to episode 42 of Where Eagles Dare. Where a great computer didn't invent Skype because this is our third attempt. Yeah, it is. Max and his gremlins have been in our works again, but tonight I've got a good feeling, Dave. Oi, hands Not off! <laughs> Not such a good feeling for November 1984, although your mileage may vary depending on your reminiscences. This is the month we're covering, so that is issues 136 through to 140. We're going to do an extra issue tonight. In November 1984, on the other side of the world, where is Muldoon? <laughs> Drunken in a cupboard, quite possibly. Probably. Regretting his snap decision announcement in July earlier of that year, former Prime Minister Robert Muldoon is ousted in a leadership challenge by Jim McClay, who proves to be Prime Minister for about 15 months, I think, before being rolled himself, uh, and the rest is history. Setting the National Party trend for a while. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of history, Madonna's Like a Virgin is released and becomes the first female released album to sell over 5 million copies, which doesn't sound like a lot these days in in the the age of your Taylor Swifts and like. But it hits the top spot in the US, the UK, Germany, Spain, the Netherlands and New Zealand. Meanwhile, later this month in Notting Hill, Ms. Ewer and Bob Geldof get some friends round to record a song. Oh dear, that's a blast from the past. As is Madonna, which was something my sisters listened to on the new Sony Walkman they had. Oh wow. I don't actually think it was a Sony one, I think it was a... Phony? Ooh, it was, it was high tech. <laughs> hey, speaking of high tech, shall we start tonight's stories? With Doomlord. Script by Alan Grant, art by Eric Bradbury. In the story, now officially known as the Populators of Pollux, the story so far, still resident on Earth after the horrific invasion of the Geminid creatures, Doomlord Vec must now face their handlers, the titular robotic Populators of Pollux. After demonstrating his powers on their ship as his captive, the invaders respond, targeting the South Australian town of Alice, which they sterilise with fire. Death lances from the air. Stone me! And the people of Alice disintegrate under Melt Factor 801. More than your um, uh, Sun Factor 50 can handle. Knock me down with a platypus, Peter! (laughs) It's for when 800 Melt Factors just simply won't do. (laughs) The alien craft issues sweep after sweep, and the RAAF are dispatched to no avail. Sooty was most annoyed. <sighs> Meanwhile, on board, in Paluxian custody, Sir Douglas Reeve and Vic discuss an escape from the slavest place to be, and Doomlord has a plan. 
I must act. I must act. Combat drones descend to Earth, but when the populators check their captives, they find the Noxian Vec has disappeared. They interrogate Reeve, and, under threat of torture, he instantly tells them Doom Lord's in his pocket. Disbelieving him, the populators activate their dissectors, but there's a stirring in the panicking Reeve's pocket, and sure enough, a bat with Vec's face fluts and flaps to freedom. Someone's been reading some Dracula files, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think Bradbury gets to indulge some much missed scream activity. Mm. Definitely pictures on the Facebook page, do you think? Oh, most definitely. I'll put a pin in it too, because I, I want to discuss something later. Very good. Outside, the RAAF engage the drone warriors, but soon see the deadly ship, a flaming whopper. Although, other burgers are available. And the smoking Alice, stone me bandy skip. Don't waste your missiles on the tin cans, Bruce. Our target's the mothership. That's actual dialogue, folks. The retaliation attack is swift and futile. Mere flies to be swatted by the mothership. Like on Australian Independence Day. <sighs> no, uh, where equals dare does not support republicanism or colonialism, or if you've listened enough, professionalism. <laughs> Aboard, the populators seek Vec himself, looking for a confiscated energizer ring, if you'll recall. Vic flies above a lone populator and returning to his Noxian form literally gets the drop on him, absorbing the robot's memory, that's a new trick, mm. and discovering the ring's location. With all local resistance quelled, the populators prepare a nest site, and a concealed Vex watches them prepare egg layers to beam down to Earth. They got a robot for everything. More RAA of ground controllers watch helplessly as the egg layers auger their sinister cargo into the burned soil and Vec finds his energizer, teleporting to the ship's engine room. There, populators arrive, but he has no time to waste with them, and wastes them instead. The actual line is, I have no time to dally with you. <laughs> Doomlord in top fop mode. He brings a mighty turbine crashing down onto their heavy armor and pummels them barehanded. Combat drones are commanded to the engine room, and Vic watches them file in. Even a Noxian Dublord could not stand against the whole populator army. On Earth, news breaks of Alice's destruction courtesy of an Australian newsreader, surely played by Craig McLaughlin, that's Harry from Neighbours. And above, the battle drones meet a populator commander who tells them that Batvec has fluttered to the control deck to kill their leader. They leave, and the commander resumes Vic's form and proceeds, alone, to trash the ship's reactor cooler. In five minutes, it will explode. There's only one task left, to rescue Reeve. And in the specimen tank, his human companion is about to be dissected. Alive! That's where we'd normally end, but we've only got a couple of episodes left, so let's charge on. Way. <laughs> but the air crackles as Doomlord Vec materialises in the chamber. Energizer to disintegrate. And with precision, the rotating dissection blade shatters in its low roar. Two populators rally against the Noxian, but Vex has no time to waste on them either. Energizer to elevate. And he lifts them up to throw them against the bulkhead. Soon he and Reeve have teleported off the ship and into the South Australian countryside. Aboard the mothership, the populators attempt to speed their mission, but discover the overheating reactor, the failing coolant, Direct backup, all courtesy of Doomlord. Their mission has failed. With the populators eliminated, boom, Earth is safe again. 
and special troops recover and burn the Paluxian eggs under the orders of Doomlord Vec, protector of Earth. The end of Doomlord, for now. I do wonder about the fallout, though, Peter, quite literally. Well, if you'll recall, the populators made sure no one from this point on is in any danger except the recovery crew in South Australia because Alice doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Alice don't live here no more. Um, <laughs> D- don't go ask Alice. <laughs> Just a question though. I mean, we, we jokingly mentioned the Dracula file, but I think when we were reading Screams, we, we were sort of coming to the end of Starkus's chase. It had sort of the momentum had rolled on with that one. And mm. I wonder, could this have been a future for the Dracula file? Crossover. Marvel House of Dracula style. Dracula becomes this unexpected protector because, you know, got to keep the humans around to drink them dry. Yeah. It's the eternal question in, you know, long form vampire stories is, you know, what's the end game for vampires? Whether you're sort of a, an ultraviolet watcher from years back or mm. more recent fear, which I perhaps spoilers forbid me from talking about you know usually it's well we'll farm the humans yeah but you've got to protect the livestock so uh, again just do lord went from being the super villain to earth's protector i wonder if it was just a thought i had with the lovely bradbury art with doom lord turning into bats and things yeah it was it was really cool the art was 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 top notch and um the buffon on the australian newsreader completely 80s oh definitely i i would only have one complaint and that is that the robots themselves are a little characterless yeah it's it's a doom lord story you watch doom lord and reeve interact around the aliens rather than you know the aliens are not particularly super dynamic in themselves mm. is it a problem that doom lords had i mean doom lord zill had personality doom lord vic definitely has personality and third Doom Lord, Zinn, he had something going for him. But the Death Lords weren't particularly characterful. No, no, they, they were, you know, a three-man force of nature. Uh, it's it's interesting to think about it, because I hadn't thought about it till we've sort of discussed it, but yeah, there's no villain in Doom Lord other than Doom Lord. Yeah, yeah. Well, it would be a nice change to have someone who can really not only be a threat to Doom Lord, but also yeah. have some form of personality whether that's a you know mustache twirling villain or or you know a frustrated foil in the in the form of sir douglas nevertheless he needs someone to bounce off against true yeah so speaking of squaring off against people well i think speaking of a belter of a story too yes why not it's the fists of danny pike story by d spence which is john wagner art by the ever wonderful jim burns Now, it's Anfield Stadium in Liverpool, and world heavyweight boxing champ Danny Pike is defending his title against up-and-comer, would-be world number four, Joe Gandhi. Danny has the local crowd behind him, singing, Oh Danny Boy, and he won't (laughs) let them down. The fight begins and Gandhi comes out swinging. Bloody violent chap, that Gandhi. Gandhi's back, and this time, he's taking no crap. As a result, the first round is clearly Gandhi's using his extra reach on Danny to fire off a flurry of jabs, with only one of Danny's body hits finding their mark. 
Round two starts much like the first, but slowly and steadily, Danny's trademark big hits find their mark, and the fight becomes more of a balanced montage battle of will and endurance. And in the seventh round, Arthur tells Danny to go for broke. The American fought well, but Danny starts unleashing punch after furious punch, and the ref calls it, Danny Pike is the winner! It's touch and go though, isn't it? I, I like the fight. Well, it's a very quick fight too. It's only two weeks, you know, for Danny Pike. That's pretty zippy. It's seven rounds. That's it's substantial. Well, it's a substantial montage in the middle. I just want to say how precarious things feel. I mean, he's the, he's the heavyweight champion. But with him with a target on his back, mm. it's a natural thing to happen next. But, uh, you know, I'm here for it. I appreciate it. It's good. Well, you're very much in your Rocky II stylings. For sure. One week later, and Danny visits Arthur at his gym office and chats with the other fighters in Arthur's stable. Not one to rest on his laurels, or even his hardies, Danny wants to set up his next fight. And the next day, while relaxing in the pool of his obviously not cursed mansion, with <laughs> honestly not sexual relationship partner, honest evil readers, Jane, Danny gets a call from Arthur. Pack your bags, and Arthur arrives 25 minutes later to pick Danny up in a helicopter. They need to be in Heathrow to fly to New Orleans to watch Danny's next opponent in action. Big easy. Kid Titus, wild boy from the Louisiana swamps. In issue 139, Kid Titus is taking on Nate Fowler, at the, and at the start of the fight, the crowd's attention is drawn to Danny in the audience before the action begins. Titus's style lacks finesse, but he's more than makes up for it with brute strength, and Fowler is knocked out in the third. Danny's bout with Titus is quickly set up for New Orleans on the 4th of July. But on the flight home, Danny spots something. A shifty-looking man with a machine gun and an outrageous accent. <laughs> Everybody sit still. This is a hijack. And that's the last of the accents I would do. <laughs> the hijackers demand the plane be diverted to El Santos, which I think at one point was a Manix location. It is. It's from the Hitler file. It is. And the other thing is it's remarkable that we were in a time where the hijackers were all South American. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, two gunmen hold the passenger section while a bespectacled terrorist moves to the cockpit with a grenade. As he sits in first class, Danny for one won't take this sitting down, and he sucker punches <laughs> the lead gunman before making short work of the second man. Then he moves in to storm the cockpit. Have a go, hero. Next time, the fate of the plane in Danny's hands. <laughs> Good job, he's not wearing any gloves. Well, you know, bare knuckle action towards the end there. It's Speaking of action, it's all action. The boxing stakes seem lower. There's, like I said before, it's only a two-week bout, and it's a lot of montage. The hijack's really zippy, too. It's a little bit soap opera, but one thing I did notice with the art this time around, Peter, does Danny look like a blonde buff Benedict Cumberbatch to you? I can't say I've noticed, but I've seen a blonde Benedict Cumberbatch before, so... <laughs> <laughs> Also, Arthur seems to be mentoring Danny in management. You know, if, if Danny's story is to continue on like Roy of the Rovers, they're definitely sort of steering this little, uh, you know, if you're going to run people, this is how you do it type thing. Mm. So setting him up, sort of, what's, what's Apollo Creed's kid's name? Ad Adonis Creed. Speaking mm. of classical characters, Peter. <laughs> Indeed. 
Let's go back to the oldies, the really oldies, with Bloodfang. Script by F. Martin Candor, that's John Wagner. Art by Carlos Cruz. As you'll recall, Dave, at the homestead of Kingdom Come Ranch, back in the Jurassic times, Cretaceous? Jurassic? It doesn't matter. Back in the goddamn dinosaur age, Bloodfang seizes daughter Frizzy's nightshirt and his dagger-like teeth, and it's only the ripping fabric which saves her. Her father, Herc, enters to rescue her, but in the confusion his rifle is snatched up by the monsters more. Now Bloodfang has a laser gun. Ho, ho, ho. But grinning hungrily, it makes short work of the weapon, and the kingdom's race to Zip's room, that's her brother, to wake the sleeping boy. He slept through everything. I have a pre-teenage son. Uh, it's a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have a teenage son. It's a thing. They go to the living room, hearth still blazing, to make a stand. And Zip again tries to tell his sister about the T-Rex eating the ill-fated big game hunter Granger. She doesn't want to know. Outside, Bloodfang edges the homestead, looking for his family meat pack. He spies her killers <laughs> with a flaming... <laughs> Sorry, that's really good. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know if other people will get it, but... <laughs> he spies Hercules with a flaming brand and crashes through the window. Herc goes to drive him away with the fire, but Bloodfang's killing lust will not be denied, and as the creature begins to rip the roof away with enough room to bust in, he lunges his head and neck towards the family. They scatter, and the T-Rex gets a burning stick up his snout in the attack. He draws back, but not in that way, and is distracted by the whinnying, panicked horses in the corral outside. Do people want their fire administered nasally? <laughs> he lumbers to the corral, hungry for French food. But Hercules <laughs> rushes out with a torch. He'll not slaughter my livestock. At the corral, one horse escapes, but the T-Rex's tail whips and fells best the remaining mare, and Bloodfang retreats into the jungle, carrying his next meal effortlessly. Eagle's Dead Stunt Horse makes another special guest appearance. <laughs> the Kingdom family regard their homestead utterly ruined because of Hercules' principles, and the father reasons that he has no choice but to hunt the creature down himself. Next day, he rides into town to see Universal's fixer, Stives, saying he'll hunt the man-eater, but Stives and an incredulous Hogan, the fixer, can't believe it when he says he wants to use tranquilizing dogs. Herc gets his wish, and returns to find the family repairing the farmyard and electric fence. Night falls, and under darkness, Kingdom enters the jungle with a tranquilizer rifle, passing the bones of Bess being picked clean by Sorectonists. I think it's those things again. I think so too. They look, they look like smaller ones than we've seen before, although Bloodfang was smaller at the time. That horse skeleton, though, looks remarkably intact, I thought, Peter. They're very, very tired eaters. <clears throat> Surely the man-eater must be close. Oh, here he comes. Next episode, <laughs> the hunter and the hunted. Herc disturbs more night creatures in his travels, and their startled cries wake the sleeping T-Rex, who soon detects the scent of man. He's been sniffed out. The hunter hurriedly looses a tranquilizer dart into Bloodfang's neck. Hogan told him he'd need at least three to do the job, and he fires another one home as the T-Rex closes in. But as he retreats, Hercules' ankle slips on loose rock, and he swiftly shoots a third dart. He can no longer run, but the old Scarface also looks unsteady, and Herc fires a fourth dart, which also hits home. The huge Tyrannosaur 
takes two more faltering steps towards kingdom, and then, and then, heck, he's gonna come down on top of me. Next week, kingdom gone, and that's Bloodfang. It's rocketing along. The art is absolutely superb. Bloodfang's a thick boy in his legs. Yes. There are a couple of panels where foreshortening is really not his thing, but who cares? It's a T-Rex. You're going to tell him. Now, now, does his bum look big in that? No. No, 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 no. It's rocketing a lot. It's lovely. Kingdom's principles. I, I, I don't get what Kingdom's up to in terms of stuff. I mean, everything seems quite extreme, but I guess you've got to do that to water up sticks and travel to the Jurassic times. But What's their long-term game plan? Are they farming land? Are they colonists? Is it a Jurassic lifestyle block? He doesn't seem to have any livestock apart from the horses, which are, I don't think they're the plough horses. I think they're, they're his transport. No, that's what his son's for. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's farming crops. Yeah, he's very much a live and let live. And it's interesting that it's you know, his wife who calls him out on it and sort of says, well, yeah, you and your principles. I, I like that aspect of it. He didn't come to that conclusion himself. He's a very uh, principled person. I just don't quite get what the game plan is, how how it all ties together. I don't think anyone else is really thinking about it. It's just we do tend to think into the corners a bit with the podcast. Dear listener, that's, that's why we're here. It's certainly something that invites close scrutiny, keeping an eye on things as they uh, unfold. Oh, 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 <laughs> dearie me. I suppose that's my cue for... One-Eyed Jack. Story by Notorious Jerry Finley Day. Art by John Cooper. Previously on One-Eyed Jack, in the Gulf of Mexico, a terrorist group, the Army of Revolutionaries, the AOR, have taken over a casino cruise liner and are threatening the passengers. But Jack knows they have probably packed the ship with explosives and will ram it into the nearby naval research base. Jack knows this by contemplating his own naval, I'm sure. <laughs> Knowing the enemy would hear any form of attack coming, Jack commandeers a glider and then parachutes down to the stricken ship. Good thing Jack was a pilot for the New York Eagles. Mm. And carrying a silence gun and smoke grenades, <laughs> yeah. he quickly eliminates the guards around the ship before freeing the hostages in the casino and using roulette balls to trip up the guards. But the last villain tells him it's too late. The hold is packed with explosives like he already suspected and the rudder is locked and the floating bomb will soon strike home. So Jack gets everyone off the ship and sets fire to the hold, escaping just before the ship explodes in the water and well before it reaches its target. I'd love for him to have jumped off the side of the boat only to get entangled in the parachute. He presumably just dropped off the side. Well, the boat's moving at a fair clip. You know, it's getting up to ramming speed, I think. We can just sit, smile and nod and say, property damage, thy name is McBain. Anyway, yes. issue 137. In downtown Manhattan, by pure chance, a truck driver sees Jack McBain in the car next to him and freaks out, running a light and scooting away at high speed. Intrigued, Jack and partner Colucci follow in hot pursuit, having to swerve as a crate jolts loose from the truck, spilling Russian Kalashnikovs all over the road. Having dumped their load, the drivers make a dash for the subway, only to be shot by Colucci, much to Jack's annoyance. But one <laughs> of the men isn't quite dead and manages to gasp out one word when Jack asks about the truck full of guns. Boneyard. 
the Hunter's Island is both Jack's MIA Padres and the AOR themselves start searching the local cemeteries to find the guns and any advantage Jack might have had is used up thanks to a traitorous informant working within the MIA. Um, if you're surprised by that, it's been a plot point for months. <laughs> Jack gets an anonymous tip-off that there is a clue on a downtown construction site, but suspecting a trap, Jack turns up anyway, only to be confronted by a man with a flamethrower. Which is what you need on a construction site. Well, I was going to say, you didn't see that on the site assets board, did you? <laughs> Jack makes short work of the villain by shooting his fuel tanks, but not before a nearby wrecking ball sends a shower of scaffolding tumbling towards him. As luck would have it in issue 138, several tons of scaffold get tangled up with itself as it falls to the ground, forming an igloo of steel around our hero. <laughs> Also, fortunately, this mesh of metal has a handy opening Jack can rush right out of and lob a grenade at the wrecking ball with perfect timing off the throw so that the grenade blows up at the point where the moving chain meets the crane arm, which sends the wrecking ball purely by chance flying back into the cab of the crane. Happened in Mannix. Good thing Jack was a fortune teller for the New York Eagles. <laughs> One final assassin hoofs it in a car, and Jack sets off in hot pursuit, trusting his knowledge of the local streets to make a capture. But oil on the road sends his quarry flying into a power pole, and the driver is dead. Then and then and then. Another lead gone, Jack hears the breakdown crew bemoan another trip to the boneyard. Yes, mm -hmm. the smash palace, a car junkyard, that's it! Jack calls in his hunch, but once again the informant passed the lead on to the AOR, who are waiting for Jack when he arrives. They try to run him down, but a hand grenade thrown through the window makes short work of these assassins. Putting pay to more miscreants with a falling stack of crushed cars, Jack recovers the gun truck for Mantis, but knows there is a traitor in their midst. Post-it note, <laughs> and he's known that for quite some time. Yeah. <laughs> In issue 139, there's a one-off, one-and-done story for Willow Jack. Back in the Gulf of Mexico, and an unscheduled chopper lands on an oil rig called the Bell Star. The oil rig, not the chopper. But it's full of AOR terrorists who proceed to gun down everybody, and soon the crew are all dead, all except Pedro the Cook. But this is no Steven Seagal movie. Steven Seagal wishes he was one like Jack. <laughs> Pedro overhears the villain's plan to blow up the rig and dump 250,000 tonnes of crude oil into the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. In the Gulf of Mexico, you say? Yes, turning the entire south coast of America into an oil-soaked wasteland. That would put everybody in pretty deep water. Well, it's such a dastardly waste land, especially when mm. Exxon will do it for you in a few years anyway. <laughs> that will always be P that is deep water. Oh, oops. Pedro tries to make a break for freedom as night falls, but he is shot and tumbles into the sea. But he doesn't die, not right away, and lives long enough to be saved by a fishing boat and for his message to be relayed to General Mantis. And then he dies. And from <laughs> Mantis to One-Eyed Jack, and Jack gets assigned some Marines to arrange a two-man assault on the wreck, Herman Colucci. But when Jack gets to the Marine Corps base, the colonel in charge takes umbrage at their civilian intervention. Jurisdictional nightmare, we've not seen one of these since Jack's cop days. He's arranged for a two-platoon assault and teams of heavy-armed troops to move out in D-Day-style assault boats. Jack and Colucci are frog into an office 
under armed guard. When will they learn? <laughs> you don't send the GIs in or the Marines, you send a cop with an eye patch. But the overconfident, well, because the overconfident Marines haven't reckoned on the AOR firepower, and a few missiles launched from the brig blow the overconfident soldiers out of the water. Grim. Jack and Colucci make a two fisted exit from their armed guard and steal a jump jet, a two man trainer, a suspiciously heavily armed two man trainer. Good thing Colucci was a pilot for the New York Eagles. <laughs> They disable the terrorist chopper, land and take out all the terrorists with Magnum 44s. The job was meant to be done quietly, and Jack ruminates, now it's as quiet as the grave. Next time, more powerful action from One-Eyed Jack. Yeah, so Joe Hardesty, the sort of commanding officer, I got a bit of a Tally Savalas vibe off him, sort of Kelly's Heroes era Tally Savalas. Quite possibly, but we know Telly Savalist exists as Telly Savalis in One Eye Jack, so... Oh, he does too. He's part of the One Eye Jackverse. Yes. Uh, lots of explaining dialogue on the uh, gambling ship. No, it... I can't keep my balance, is what you yell while you're scooting around on roulette balls. Better than being kicked in your roulette balls, to be honest, but there you go. Right. Speaking of a kick in the nuts, Peter. <laughs> my computer's gone to sleep. Irony, thy name is asked. <laughs> Speaking of other stories, it's the welcome return of the Amstor computer. Now, when you say welcome, <laughs> bear with me. This story is number 958732, programmed by Alistair Bell of True, written by A Stone, art by Heinzel, and it's called Ever Decreasing Circles. Cue the theme tune. So this is one of those stories, Dave, where it's actually going to take longer to describe what's happening, so I may as well just read it to you. I'm going to get a coffee. See ya. <laughs> in a cave somewhere in the world sits an old, old man. Ooh, he's in robes and sort of looks wizardy, and he's surrounded by all sorts of old paraphernalia sitting in front of a fire, and someone has a club, and he says, I didn't see you there, my friend. What have you brought this time? A flower or uh, a club? So the invading person is like a caveman and he goes to club the old man and the old man shoots laser beams or some sort of gravity thing from his hands, throws him against the wall. Lovely, lovely Heinzel art. Then he starts pontificating. All you had to do was enter my cave in peace. I've plenty of food to share. There's no need to take it by force. So it begins. Yet again, let me tell you a story, my friend. A wee story within a story, <laughs> Peter. A story within a story. You may not understand my words, but hopefully you may understand their meaning. I don't. It begins with men like you, men who picked up a club to lend strength to their arm, but this is too short range. So eventually they will learn how to throw. They will invent spears. But the spears will be too much for the strength of a man who needs a machine with which to hurl his spear even further with much, much more damaging results. We're now in the, uh, I don't know, the Roman times with bows and arrows. But even this will not satisfy the bloodlust. Eventually, the bow and arrow will be replaced by guns. Combat between men will be further and further apart. So, modern day warfare, and then eventually man will not even have to leave his own country. The face of his enemy will never be seen. All man will have to do is press a button. And all hell will break loose, mushroom cloud, obligatory mushroom cloud. And it all begins with a primitive like you, you dingus. <laughs> I, may, I may have paraphrased. And so, 
All you had to learn to Anyway, he should have come in peace. The end. Not war. Boom. I'm store. Right on. Well, no, but at the end of the story, he, he waves his arm out to the desolate wasteland outside, and it is a ruined central London. This is the future, not the past. It's all subtext. It's all subtext. Except for the stuff that's overt text, yes. Yes. Give peace a chance. Future Shock? Well, you know, the, the whole thing of, oh man, will he never learn? That's been a bit of a staple for recent Amstor computer stories. And you go, nah. And over in 2018, they're doing similar things with the Future Shocks. But actually, the art redeems us with Heinzel. I mean, it doesn't yes. redemption, of course, but it, you know, it's, it, it looks lovely. Um, it's just you know, a bit of a lightweight story. Speaking of lightweight... <laughs> Speaking of uh, low gravity, there you go. Lacking gravity. Nice. Yes. It's Dan Deere, pilot of the future in a story called Garok. Story, we don't know, maybe Tomlinson, maybe Tully. Could be Goodall. Discuss later. Art by the ever-wonderful Ian Kennedy. Hooray. Now, I'm going to suggest a bit of a format change here, Peter, too, because... We've been sticking with covers in regular features, but now everything's a Dan Deer cover. I think we should do the covers in Dan Deer, but we shall see how we go. Okay. Let's peek behind the curtain there, listener. Previously on Dan Deer, Dan is off on a super new spaceship in pursuit of the evil Mekong, but has run into his new robot companion, a supercomputer which unfurls like a Swiss army knife and a nifty cover for issue 136. Permit me to give a demonstration of my skills. It's a yellow multitask fridge. Yes. We get what can only be described as a munitions montage of Starkian proportions as the little cubic robot fires off about a bazillion missiles, causing chaos and carnage in an advertising video, basically. I just thought that maybe Dare had a bit of a bagman fetish. It had Rogue Trooper envy. <laughs> it's very much that he has a sort of eye that pokes out the top. Which which would be a Tom Tully? Or uh, Jerry yeah. Finley Day? Well, if he had a disembodied hand, where's your Tom Tully? Put, put a pin in there. <laughs> Dan and his new 2IC Yang are suitably impressed and continue preparations for departure in three days' time. But the Mekon is aware of Dan's preparations and slowly and steadily draws his own plans against him. Three days later in the supership, the Z-99 takes off but the Megon has prepared a surprise for our hero, and three surface-to-air missiles blast off from secret locations around the Earth to blow Dan's new ship out of the sky. Hmm. In issue 137, we have a lovely Ian Kenny cover again of the Z-99 with three missiles heading towards it. But have no fear, because Boxy the supercomputer takes control six seconds before impact <laughs> and effortlessly blows the missiles away in what can only be described as a countdown collage. Plot armor. After thanking the computer, who is probably never seen again, Dan and Yang head back to Earth to find out what the heck is going on. When the news gets back to the Mekon, he's not happy. That earthly creature has more lives than a Venusian polecat. One struck by a platypus, one assumes. And he orders his train agents who launch the missiles to eliminate themselves to evade capture immediately. And then we can have what's only described as a suicide slideshow as the agents pop pills out of their secret chest cavities manic style and end it all. Except for one who is caught by the EDF, ouch, and has his pills blown out of his gloved hand. The cover for this looks very rugby tacklish. 
It does. We have an all-action cover as three Earth Defense Force troopers try and subdue the giant Trine agent in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Lovely stuff. It's a pylon. Oh, transmission line? What? He's a lineman for the county. <laughs> um, inside the issue, Dan introduces the tree into the not-torture-honest truth helmet and starts <laughs> the interrogation. While out in the depths of space, a furious Mekon takes out his frustrations on his human prisoners by whipping them from his floating chair. But one of the humans is Hilda Hodgson, a rich holiday maker who was infected by a miniaturized alien General Garok who has been slowly taking over her body. And the whipping is enough for the alien commander's psyche to call enough and grabs the Mekon's whip from the air and pulls the Venusian villain off his chair. <laughs> we have another all-action cover for issue 139 as Hilda sends the Mekon flying before the train guards step in to subdue her. I'm intrigued by the inside of the Mekon's sort of flying saucer seat. Um, I think it's been seen before in various old-school cutaways. He's got a wee sort of lumbar roll he sits on. Yes, yes. And a suspicious hatch behind that for, I don't know, his Werther Originals or something like that. He's probably in his 700s. Uh, yeah, some suspiciously strong mints might be appropriate. But um, <laughs> I suspect Davros's chair is very much the same. Yes. Not a wheeled commode. Says you. Meanwhile, back on Earth, before you can say, oh no, not the mind probe, the trussed-up Trine is spilling the beans on the Mekon's plans to track Dan, but doesn't know his nefarious master's current location. Dan resolves to carry on with his hunt for the Mekon, just as Hilda in solitary confinement begins to feel rather strange, and the Mekon's forces carry out an all-out attack on the Earth installations on Mars. Destroy everything and leave no one alive! That's pretty brutal. But up till now the Mekon's been sort of quite camp. When he's sort of whipping the, the humans, he's saying, Maximum discomfort! <laughs> Increase to fatal level! Fatal discomfort. <laughs> Get the comfy chair. Yeah, it's one of the gripes I've had with this run of stories. The Mekon's never been an emotional being in the Dan Dare yeah. canon. So having this sort of sadistic little green alien doesn't quite sit right. It's certainly not your typical Mekon story, but I, I, I dig it. Yeah, yeah, no. Like, I, think, I think Hilda's subplot is silly. There's no other way for it. And it's, it's about time that her inner alien finally showed itself because they've been teasing and teasing and teasing and teasing. But I'm enjoying it. So, <laughs> uh, well, just powder drop. Okay. Yeah, we have this other amazing cover: is the train ships fly into the attack, mm. destroying the Mars base as the Mekon orders destroy everything and leave no one alive. The news is related to Dan and the Z99 at Deep Space, where everyone is wearing spiffy new Star Trek-style space uniforms. And despite the news of the carnage, Dan is more shocked that his new science officer is Professor Pinkerton. A girl! Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> You're a girl! What about the women folk streetwise? Pinkerton quickly kicks any chauvinism into touch and grudgingly Dan accepts his new crew member. Meanwhile, things have gone from bad to worse for poor Hilda, who awakens to find herself in a tree torture machine. Custom built by the look of it. But as the power level and pain increases, something strange begins to happen and Hilda's resistance increases and a bored Mekon leaves, distracting everyone else so no one else notices the start of an amazing transformation. Commander Garok of the Imperial Legion of Tama 7 is about to appear. Next time, witness Garok's incredible rebirth. But I'm a girl. <laughs> well...
there's a few things to unpack. Professor Pinkerton, I assume, is an analogue for Professor Jane Peabody from the original Dan Deere stories. Mm-hmm. But any sexism seems really odd given, you know, we've had Zeta and Commander Helen Thingy and yep, Yelena from, from the Space Cadet days. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Hmm. She's Uhura-esque. Uh, possibly. She does communications and wave studies and stuff. Well, she has a killer afro as well. I think it's a perm. But it's the 80s, who knows? Mm-hmm. But with the, the, her arrival and Yang and the new uniforms and getting rid of Robo-1 and bringing in the new supercomputer, who I don't think we ever see again, I have to be honest, it does really feel like a new broom kind of story or even a new broom mid-story. Hmm. Never mind. One of the other thing I noticed is um, when I initially made my notes, I only did four weeks rather than five, and I thought it was very telling that I didn't notice it as a kid. The net result of the first four weeks is nothing. Dan takes off, gets shot at, turns back down, goes to the planet, finds the Mekons involved, takes back off again, and Hilda's still turning into an alien very slowly. You know, nothing of any consequence happens for a big chunk of these stories. It's fun, don't get me wrong, but it's very glaring when you when you spot it. I think if I was receiving Eagle on a weekly basis, this is not the story that would keep me going from issue to issue. Mm. especially compared to everything else that's going on. Yeah, yeah, things are happening. But Garhok and his Dance of the Seven Veils, not helping. But no. we might be about to reach the heel in the sock. Hopefully that's true, yes. Speaking of smelly footwear... It's the regular features! Robotech and Robo Machines and Transformers, oh my! Yeah. Um, there adds... <laughs> we'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We've discussed the covers, Peter, which... Which one is your favourite? Uh, my favourite, I think, is cover 140. It was very nearly Mekon versus Hilda. It's very silly. Yeah. I mean, it was very nearly 137. Z99 is a lovely looking ship in Kennedy Spaceship. In the spirit of Firefly as well. But I think 140, where the Mekon unleashes Hal on Mars, is actually quite dramatic. And, oh, how many times have I said this? I would have loved to have seen this painted. Yes. I mean, uh, I've got to say, I, I do have a soft spot for the rugby tackle cover. Yes. But in terms of the one I immediately recognised from as being a kid, mm. it's got to be Swiss Army Knife Supercomputer. Because it just, yep. it's so weird. It, it just is so memorable. Yes, it's a family block of cheese multi-tool, really. It's just a yellow, yes. yellow mini fridge. Of death. Yeah. This way up, for God's sake. So then we come to ads of the month. We have a lovely Lego ad, which not only predicts the Lego movie, but as a master builder character builds a train home, we also successfully predict the confusion and delays caused by the 80s privatisation of the railway network. (laughs) It's very vintage Lego, isn't it? It, They look like an old set. Elsewhere in the issues, a bit of a hangover from the, the days of Scream, I feel. There's a 13th floor game based around your common or garden pack of cards. You've got to sort of essentially cross off by dealing different cards in the deck the different floors maxwell towers every time you get the 13th floor you go down four floors or something like that it looks actually quite theoretically playable and could be Mm. literally minutes of fun so i'd be intrigued to give it a go just not yet there's also by popular demand the return of the g1 definitely not gi board game yes and also by popular demand maybe the return of ghastly's gallery from scream 
Yes. They're still trying to flog 50 bucks for guessing Ghastly's face. Almost seems like a bit of a swizz because Ghastly's face will eventually be revealed, but I feel that you'd have to be so absolutely bang on, they're not letting that money go. And and I remember Barry Tomlinson saying, we thought the money was pretty safe. <laughs> so. We've started giving away clues. I don't know if this is a way of trying to help people or engage readers, but um, again, like you said, we don't know what's come from the Scream slush pile. I'm really surprised you didn't pick up the uh, ad of the month as the fabulous Eagle BMX bike for £70, Peter. £70? Yeah, it comes in with in white with blue and white with green. Mm. Now, I was probably distracted by the Lucky Six guest starring Barry Campbell of New Zealand. Hello Barry. Where are you now? Long time since issue 138. Although speaking of other things uh, a long time since issue 138, you can own an A-Team duvet set for £18. <gasps> I pity the fool. And my ad of the month, it's taken a while to get to it, we have uh, just a, a book review for Douglas Hill's Warriors of the Wasteland. <laughs> Cue the theme tune. Well, it was my slice of sci-fi action at that age. I was really into Douglas Hill's books, although I was more of a Last Legendary than Huntsman series, but boy, does Finn Farrell have the best blonde mullet of the 80s on the cover. So you actually read this? Oh, yeah, 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 I had the whole set. Wow. Um, there's the Huntsman, the Warriors of the Wasteland, and Alien Citadel. See, for me, Warriors of the Wasteland is just a Frankie Goes to Hollywood song. So. Yeah, well, I think it predates that. Yeah, it would. Douglas Hill books, really good. I've recently uh, found a few people who are trying to get them for their kids because they have fond memories of reading them too. So, yes, very, very good. Thoroughly recommended. Ooh. Deserves a podcast, people, uh, but just not with me. But certainly this month it is all about robots in disguise with ads for Robotech from Bandai, uh, Transformers mm -hmm. from Hasbro, and if you can't afford Transformers, well, we've got news for you. But speaking of robots in disguise, Dave, Yes, it's Mannix, alias Smithson Jones. A story by Emma's Goodall and art by Kimona. Previously on Mannix, our everyone's favourite robot secret agent Mannix has rescued Soviet defector Hans Krakow by disguising himself as ace footballer Smithson Jones in a plot that is as action-packed as it is needlessly complicated. <laughs> they really do throw everything into this. On the football team's return to Vienna, Mannix discovers that the luggage compartment he stowed his communist counteragent is now compromised and the semi-conscious captive companion has completely vanished. Feigning present shopping, our faux footballer searches the streets of the Austrian's capital by backtracking the bus route and scales a gothic cathedral, maybe not quite in a single bound. A single panel, maybe. Lots of travel photos used in the montage. Yes. From his high vantage point, Manic spots the delirious defector using his Steve Austin knockoff bionic vision and leaps from the building to save time, crashing to earth in a graveyard and totally obliterating the grave of one Heinrich Muller. Now, interestingly enough, Peter, this isn't the first Defector story we've recently had where Mannix should have been looking more carefully before he jumped. But uh, <laughs> for th that, dear listener, you need to look in the, as advertised in this lovely side note here, the Eagle Annual 1985, coming to all good bookstores and podcast catchers near you soon. Nice. Anyway, pulling a blowpipe out from his hidden chest cavity, Mannix shoots the blow dart into Krakow before the shambling man can draw any more attention to himself. But as Krakow collapses, the police arrive. 
In issue 137, realizing his robotic powers might just save the day, Mannix leaps into action, grabbing Krakow and bounding away, pausing only to swat one of the coppers with Krakow's lifeless body. Photos on the Facebook page. <laughs> Mannix escapes to his MI5 safe house, puts Krakow to bed and contacts his boss, O, on the old commander's ham radio set, informing him he needs to organize the rest of Krakow's extraction because Mannix has football to play. I was on a secret mission behind the Iron Curtain and a football match broke out. We have a half page of robot football shenanigans with Mannix breaking a cheating defender's leg during an attempt at a foul tackle before the Ooh. British team win the match. That's messy. Let's not look too closely at the morality of cheating. Hey, robot footballer. <laughs> on returning to London, Mannix meets with O and a mind wipe Smiths and Johns and oddly enough, the three goons who've been blackmailing Johns, whose minds have also been wiped, and they've been released back into society because... <laughs> the next day, the robot Mannix is stripped down, removing his Smiths and Johns persona, and there is no next mission yet, so Mannix rests waiting. But when the time comes, Mannix will live again. Spoilers, I don't think Mannix ever comes back in the comics. Oh, that's the end of the photo strip legacy, people. Wow. So yeah, Mannix, Mannix ends in that sort of really creepy sort of micronauts like dummy that he is. Yes. Yeah. As as he appears in, in the very first Mannix, man, so many callbacks to the very early Mannix. There's defectors, the blow darts, the jumping impossible mm-hmm. heights. The brain wipe seems to be something that he's innovated since the days of having to throttle fellow agent Kara to silence her. Well, the brain wipe is administered by British intelligence in London. It's not something ah. Mannix does, so yeah. Right. But again, watch the annual space, people, because that, that's <laughs> an interesting fix. It's sort of hitting the limits of the format, though, I think. It's not bad, but it's the Cold War wash, rinse, repeat. There's no yeah. real new developments on the horizon. He's certainly due a rest, if not necessarily yes. an end. I wonder whether they did have every intention of bringing him back, but it just didn't happen. Things from the Manix verse, however, may appear in, in the next few <laughs> years. Yes. But, you know, there could be it could be wandering aimlessly around the UK causing mayhem, Peter. Speaking of which, it's time for the first of the screaming ports. Monster by Rick Clark, that's John Wagner, art by Jesus Redondo. With white and hairy knuckles, the size of bird skulls, a terrified Uncle Terry Corman desperately grips the rail of the speeding Blackwell roller coaster, riding it solo and unfastened. Oh, hang on a sec! <laughs> he rides the beast through loop and drop, until, physics being a harsh mistress, he's thrown off, flying through the night into the canvas roof hall of horrors on the pleasure beach. He recovers as the attraction quickly empties amongst a host of lifelike waxworks. The Wolfman, a dead ringer for Ghastly McNasty, an executioner with a disembodied head, King Kong, and accosting Frankenstein's monster for directions out of the maze, he decapitates the mute model in frustration, taking it out further on Dracula and sundry skeletal ghouls. All very meta. Yeah. <laughs> in the chaos, burly carnies enter and there's a scuffle. Despite getting the upper hand, Terry is felled by a big man, Bert, and an axe handle. Meanwhile, the police are making towards the tent, 
but Bert has his men bundle Terry into a huge trunk nearby. The monster's going to make us a packet of money! Outside, a silence falls as the manhunt goes cold, and as a police checkpoint is set up, Bert and his cronies slip away, taking the trunk to a basement flat near the city centre. They discuss their grotesque prize. £5,000 for the monster may mean even more for an exclusive interview. Terry comes too, and Bert charms him into thinking that they're friends. They want to help. Sure, they'll look for Kenny tomorrow, but they avoid the police for now. Terry likes this plan, because he doesn't like the police. And he likes his new friends, and enjoys a night with food and cartoons on the TV. Happy for the first time in many days, while Bert calls the night editor of the local paper. £23,000 for an exclusive interview is secured. Meanwhile, at 2am, Terry's nephew Kenny arrives in Blackpool with Inspector Halley. He still protests at the police calling Terry a monster, and only promises to help on the condition that they won't shoot him. He's a person, see? Just like you and me. And you've got to treat him like a human being. There's little chance of that. At 10am, as a reporter and photographer from the Daily Glow arrived to Bert's basement to find the monster. An awkward interview is attempted, but Terry grows tired and confused by questions of killing and family and lashes out violently, clubbing the press. There will be no further questions. As the camera flashes continue, he rounds on the photographer and Bert's men go to shoot him, but miss and strike the photographer instead. At the sound of a gun, Terry turns. Gone bad. You not friends. Try shoot there. Now you die. That escalated quickly. <laughs> yes. Bert's quick talking saves them, and Terry resumes breakfast TV while Lacan is puzzled over what to do with two bodies. Suddenly, the TV shows an emergency broadcast, which is an appeal from Kenny live for Terry to give himself in. The brute instantly rises to go to the local station to find his nephew, but Bert's quick thinking again convinces Terry that Kenny wouldn't work with the police. It's a trick. They'll take him to the real Kenny that night, and in the evening... Their van rolls past a police checkpoint, convincing the coppers its awful cargo is merely waxwork dummies. They arrive in some lonely woods. Terry is ordered to dig deep graves, a task he's well used to for the bodies, not realising that one of those holes is also meant for him. And when the bodies are in, Bert orders Terry to turn around, wave goodbye, and with a shotgun, he shoots the big man. His wounds slowly fill in the hole burying Terry, but bulk at entering the pit to trample down the earth, so Bert steps down to do the deed. The dead's dead, see? Ain't nothing they can do to hurt you. Hurt me? And Bert screams as Terry bursts out of the ground, seizing his traitorous neck. The end of Monster. Until next episode. I like that. It was a good month, this one. Yeah, it's very grim. I think they realise what the best bits from the Scream Run were and have started running with those. Yeah, yeah. I think the cameos by Frankenstein and, and Dracula and, and the Wolfman are a dead giveaway. And, and as I say, there's a sort of a cheeky, ghastly, McNasty reference in there as well. That's all right. Yeah, I don't mind that at all. It's a, it's a little bit more flavour to Eagle, and I'm all for it. And the other thing I quite enjoyed is the, the tone with the carnies and the granginess. It, the villains sort of bring it down to earth in a way that's very grimy and not so sci-fi and fantastical. And it made me think of the tales of the grave stories. I don't know if you're getting the same vibe, but, you know, being buried alive and hands reaching up out of the ground. Yeah, not not so much, but I can sort of see where you're getting it. A, a 
very much the spectre of of Scream is in this month, whether it's through Ghastly's face or the 13th floor game, which surely was just waiting for an issue in Scream. Probably, yeah. Yeah, and Batvek. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I, I can see it. I mean, of course, Tales in the Grave was very, very steeped in Victorian mythos, and this, this is modern-day Blackpool. Mm. Though you'd squint to see that, I think. Well, I mean, in one panel, the townhouses of Blackpool are looking very um, Elizabethan, shall we say. Very Tudor Gothic. Yeah. yeah, I've no idea what it's like there. So. Well, again, I, I'm sure there might be suburbs, but there's a little Porky Pig's Bugs Bunny reference with, uh, that's all, folks. Bye. See you again <laughs> soon. Uh, so we're, we've established we're in the One-Eyed Jack universe here. Oh, no, hang on. They're, they're all Disney characters. What yes. am I saying? <laughs> but speaking of... Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Well, Mickey Mouse <laughs> franchises, yeah, fair enough. There uh, we go. <laughs> we have a new story, Peter. It's the Robo Machines, story <laughs> by Tom Tully, art by M. Capaldi, which is in the tradition of great Capaldi's having to work with rather dire scripts, if I may say so and not show my hands. Really. Ooh, shots fired. Based on a concept by... Well, it was another place and another time, Peter. Mm. A time when copyright and branding were optional. And Hasbro <laughs> have come up with the Transformers, and mm. Bandai are trying to steal the march with their own transforming robot line. Not the Robo Machines, but you may know these better as GoBots. Mm. And mm. as far as I can tell, these guys technically came first, but we're talking about a matter of months. So it's. Eh. I'm sure there is a very interesting backstory to how these developed. But as far as I can tell, in terms of branding them as the robo-machines and these characters and backstory, this is all unique to Britain. Yeah. And specifically, unique to Eagle. Well, you'd say that, but there was a bit of a marketing offensive in 2000 AD as well. They even got a cover drawn i think by kevin o'neill which just mm. makes the mind real and boggle because imagine what this strip i mean not not to cast an eye too far into the future but this strip might have been like in the hands of say pat mills and kevin o'neill <laughs> the parents of robusters and abc warriors but i suppose history <laughs> is shaped by the winners <laughs> and these guys are always somehow going to come off as poor second cousins by comparison yeah. Keep your powder dry. Indeed. Anyway, for the preceding four issues, we've had a series of full-page black-and-white ads proclaiming the robo-machines are coming with special reports from space, Star-Lord-style. So it's quite a big campaign. Mm. So uh, in issue 138, taking over from Mannix, we're on Robotron, a planet in the Proxima system over four light years from Earth on a robotic world where even the human inhabitants are 99% robot. Intriguing. And recently all killed in a solar flare according to science on my Facebook page. Mm. But back in 1984, everyone on their planet is preparing the inauguration parade for their new president. Everyone including the mad scientist Strondomes. Strondomes? Yeah, something like that. It's a name straight out of a 1970s fantasy paperback, isn't it? Strondomes? I, I sort of read it as Strondomes. 
Zort's Demon in a competition page, but if you just <laughs> substitute Poor Man's Megatron in there, you should Yeah. Although, it's Poor Man's Starscream might be more valid. Yeah, a, 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 lot of the, a lot of the names are punish, but this one just doesn't seem to... But no. There's probably an explanation. Anyway. Strong Domez, shall we say, has created a new range of robo-machines. Robots that can metamorph and definitely not transform into other things. <laughs> These two miscreants are the slow-witted Tank, who transforms into a tank, and Psykill, who transforms into a motorcycle. A mobike, Peter. A mobike. I mean, that's a very Pat Mills name, Psykill. But it's Tom Tubby. So I know, I know, I've got to get it out of my head. Together, they try and stage a coup during the parade, but are beaten back by the ever-vigilant security forces of Robotron. Maybe City One Public Surveillance Unit hasn't got nothing on these guys, mm-hmm. so maybe Strong Dermes has a point. Anyway, vanquished and somewhat disheveled, the terrorists hightail it to the backwater planet Earth. Mm-hmm. As our incompetent invading interlopers monologue about their plans back on Robotron, the supreme overlord of all security forces, not sinister at all, mm. and Microsoft wannabe XL gathers a group of volunteers to convert into robo machines of his own. Again, not sinister, honest gov, in hot pursuit and in a very toyetic command center. But back on Earth, Strong Domes and Co. have landed with a new robo-machine in tow, Phytor, who transforms, uh, sorry, metamorphs, <laughs> into a jet Phytor, and Strong Domes orders attack on the nearby small town of Chokum. Yeah, Chokum, yeah. Pausing only to make their spacecraft invisible, Tom Tully's secret hand style, photos on the Facebook page, Strong Domez Adams orders his monsters to attack, but be sure of leaving plenty of witnesses so this world can tremble before his genius. It's a sound plan. As the residents of the small town marvel at these mysterious machines that have suddenly appeared in their city, the machines metamorph, definitely not transform, all guns blazing to bring chaos and carnage. The destruction of Chokum has begun. Although technically, it should have been the stranglehold of Choker, but there you go. (laughs) Next time, Robots on the Rampage. Right. (laughs) I've got a couple of notes. The early episode on, uh, is it Robotica? Is that the name of the planet? Uh, uh, Robotron, I think. Robotron, there we go. It had some promise. I mean, it, it sort of, it looked like a futuristic world illustrated by Ron Turner, but it's quite line arty. There's not a lot of depth and dimension to it. So I wonder whether there were plans at one stage for it to be colorized, which I think would have lifted it tremendously. But in the meantime, yeah, you've got this quite sort of almost twee dinky-ish, as in dinky toy, mm. realized world. And then immediately we've got to go to Earth because that's what you do with your giant transforming, sorry, metamorphosing robots mm. you've got to bring them to earth and bring the world to us because there's no point in going to mars if you've got a robot which transforms into an earth vehicle yeah and on that note i do like the sense of the absurd with these futuristic vehicles parked in the middle of Cholcom and cycle programming the look and function of a milk float as it goes by thinking this might be useful sometime yeah <laughs> um <laughs> It wouldn't even be good as a B-movie, Peter. Yeah, there's the Asylum rip-off Transmorphers, which might be sort of 
in this area. I haven't seen it, but with an 80s retro bent, definitely. I mean, the problem is we've got things in the comic like 13th Floor and Doom Lord. Mm. And this is sort of the level of sub-Saturday morning cartoons. It's not greatly far from the KP Outer Spaces ads, and yet they had, I mean, no offence to M. Capaldi, but they had Ron Smith doing the art and, and yeah. elevating a really, really tissue-thin script that way. Yeah, I do wonder if you're right and colour was meant to be added or something, mm. because the robots themselves do look quite flat. Yeah, it's it, look, it's very sure of itself. The hero robot of you know, the good guys has dark glasses built into him or something like that. So, you know, we know he's the cool one. Unless he's blind. Well, possibly. Um, and, and, of course, Strom Domez has utter nutter monocle slash mm. bung eye and looks all ranty and shouty. But, yeah, I, I, that, that's pretty much all I've got to say. Apart from reading into the, a wee bit of the, the background of this, this story is not canon, if you want to say that, to true Bobo machines or GoBots. It's quite idiosyncratically UK and Eagle. There was a comic series, which by all accounts was disastrous. DC had the title for the UK and it lasted two issues and imploded. So future collectors of Robo Machine paraphernalia, you've got <laughs> quite the not to unravel here. Dandier Corporation, there may be a marketing avenue for you there. <laughs> Somehow, I don't quite see it. Please don't put it at the top of the list. No. But speaking of mechanical minds that could probably do better, Peter. <laughs> Indeed. Let's go to the last story of this month, which is, of course, in Holland, John Wagner, Alan Grant, and Jose Ortiz's The Thirteenth Floor. As you'll recall, computer technician Mr. Bryce has been called into Maxwell Towers to replace Supercomputer Max's faulty integrated function module, the secret behind his 13th floor. Max won't part with his private realm, so off to the impossible floor, Mr. Bryce goes. The lift doors open to darkness and cobwebs. But as soon as Bryce tries to re-enter the lift, its walls close in, crushing him. Stop, but please let me go! Oh no, Mr. B. I can see you're a determined man. You're going to take a lot of convincing. But the bricks burst apart, revealing Bryce alone in a vast, rocky desert. The sky darkens, and there's a bolt of lightning and a thunderstorm? No, Mr. Bryce. A horror storm. Max's horror storm unleashes bats, scorpions, snakes from which the screaming Bryce runs from to the shelter of an overhanging rock, which gives way above him. The rock crashes down, but Bryce, miraculously, is alive. Wily Coyote style. I mean, it is so Looney Tunes, it's just... Well, he's, he's, not, he's not buying into it, of course. <laughs> of course I'm not dead. It's all just a fantasy created by the computer. Yes, Mr. Bryce, a fantasy. But the pain is real, and I can make it last forever. The hillside becomes a lava flow, engulfing Bryce until he begs for release, promising Max he'll not replace the circuit. Max releases him to the ground floor. But far from grateful, Bryce tells Max he must be stupid to believe he's going to stop here. Max must be stopped, and Bryce retrieves his toolbox from his car and re-enters the lobby of Maxwell Towers. This time... He'll be using the stairs, but as he reaches the twelfth floor, Max uses the time to summon his hypnotized backup and a pipe-wielding Bert Rudge is there to take Bryce to the lifts. 
Oh, poor bird, bird, bird. <laughs> I know. Bryce tries to force his way past, but Bert strikes him down and takes him to the 11th floor to be hypnotised too. But examining him, Max detects no heartbeat. Bryce is dead. I was so convinced that Bryce's release to the outside world was going to be a fake out. So the fact, A, it wasn't, and Max fell for it, and then B, he gets brained by Bert. <laughs> Fatally. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I love how that story keeps us on our toes. Thinking quickly and using his audio recording synthesized from the phones, Max adopts Bryce's voice and calls his controller Jerry, saying he was wrong. Max's circuit only looks burnt out. It's fine. Meanwhile, the real late Mr. Bryce has been dumped in his car in an old quarry by Bert. And all the while, an oblivious Bert is being watched by workers nearby at the pit. They go and confront Bert, asking him why he dumped the car, not knowing there was a body inside. But an entranced Rudge walks off, only to be recognised and paid a visit by the police, who nab him despite his confused protests. Poor Bert. <laughs> the next morning, Max's controller Jerry reads the news and remembers Bryce's impossible call. Max says he must have the times wrong. But Jerry insists he doesn't. And what's more, he recalls Max's talent for voice duplication. He demands answers. Ortiz's angry Jerry art is gorgeous. It is. Please don't shout, Jerry. You know it upsets me. And you won't like me when I'm upset. <laughs> no. But Jerry becomes furious and he doesn't believe a word, accusing Max of using Bert to do his dirty work. I don't like the way this is going at all. I mean... Jerry's my controller, my friend. But if he starts probing too deep, then I'm afraid Jerry must pay a visit to my 13th floor. Max relents and tells Jerry everything, well, nearly everything. And then... Jerry, what would you say if I told you this building had a 13th floor? Max leads his disbelieving controller to the lift and moves obediently. Before I open the door, tell me, what would you least expect to find in the middle of a housing block? The flaming polar ice cap. Now stop playing silly games, Max. Sure enough, the doors open to an arctic scene. Jerry bundles up and marvels at Max's imaginative illusion. But behind him, something stirs, and Jerry spins round to see he's being tracked. No polar ice cap would be complete without a polar bear, Jerry. The controller cowers, but the bear closes in and on its hind legs, wrapping Jerry in a powerful embrace. <sighs> Next week, will Max know when to stop? Ooh, this has been brewing for some time, and, and the story is just... Ooh, ooh. I mean, this is the polar opposite of all our walk or die situations. <laughs> How long can he bear it? Uh, we'll just have to bear with it ourselves. <laughs> But that is our month of Eagle. Yes, and that's been quite an interesting month. Again, full five weeks, a bit, bit thicker than our usual run. Yeah. But worth it. Well worth it in most yes. cases. Do you have a top story? My top story is, without further ado, Bloodfang. It's lush and gorgeous and awesome. Doomlord is up there as well, but Doomlord's villains are a bit naff. Bloodfang mm. just looks lovely, and the whole sequence in Kingdom Come is, is spectacular. Yeah. 
Yeah, Bloodfang is strong this month. I feel like my stories have been quite strong. I mean, Monster was was really atmospheric, as as we discussed. Thirteenth mm. floor and Doomlord. Well, Doomlord came to an end, and you know the link with the Geminid Plague was. I thought it was pretty cursory, really, mm. but um, it was fine, and certainly no complaints. Eric Bradbury's risen to the occasion really, really well. I think my story of the month is the thirteenth floor, though, simply because Ian Holland is keeping us guessing mm. well and truly. It's not completely rote. As you say, this was a long time coming. Max was ever extending his reach, and rather like one of his previous victims, Nick, something had to give. <laughs> Watch this space. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It's going to get very, very bumpy. And your bottom story? Uh, I'm sorry. I mean, you, you feel like you're kicking it coming in the door, but Robo machines got me down, <laughs> making the notes for it and everything. It's just like, oh, dear me. I think it's fair enough. It's never going to win hearts and minds being a licensed product unless that licensed product is really strong. Mm. We're in agreement. Anyway, it's, it's um, what do they call again? <laughs> go bots. Robo go machines. Bots. <laughs> it's them. Just go bots. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. We will return. The next episode is looking like we may actually take a detour, doesn't it, Dave? Yes, because it's we're already getting ads for the festive holiday special. Mm. See plug earlier this episode. <laughs> so we have the 1985 annual to cover with a special guest, as usual. Very much looking forward to that going out. And then join us for December 1984, where Jerry finds things unbearable on the 13th floor. Where someone puts the hoodoo on Danny Pike. Things just aren't the way they used to be for Bloodfang. Hilda Hodgson has a funny turn on the hand here. Things get very grave for Uncle Terry in Monster. And a traitor is unmasked on one eye jack. All that, plus the return of Doomlord in the next Where Eagles Dare. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to follow us or get in touch, you can find Where Eagles Dare on Facebook and at sophiegiddon.wordpress.com. We're on Twitter at sophiegiddon, and you can email us at sophiegiddon at gmail.com. This has been a Surfageddon production. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. It's a good night from me. And it's a very good night from me. Stay safe and well. Indeed. Good, good night. as long as I have, you'll know that before any new product can be developed, it, it, it has to be properly researched. I mean, we, we've got to find out what people want from fire, you know, how they relate to it, the image. Stick that, it up your nose. Which is precisely the kind of thing we need to know. I mean, do people want fire that can be fitted nasally? It's the single simplest machine in the entire universe. All right, Mr. Wise Guy, you're so clever. You tell us what color it should be.